King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon brought his entire army to surround Jerusalem. On the tenth day of the tenth month during the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, the mighty army of Babylon was camped outside the city and built siege mounds around it. This siege lasted 18 months, well into the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign. By the ninth day of the fourth month of that year, the famine had become so severe in the city that no one had anything to eat. Panic was setting in as the people feared starvation. When a section of the city wall was breached, all the warriors of Jerusalem escaped through a gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Even though the Chaldeans had the city surrounded, these warriors escaped the city under the cover of night and fled east toward the Jordan Valley. But the Chaldean army discovered this and chased after Zedekiah, catching him on the plains of Jericho. All of his soldiers had scattered and he was alone when they captured him. They took him to the king of Babylon who had set up his command post at Riblah in the land of Hamath. It was here that the king pronounced judgment on Zedekiah. Zedekiah was forced to watch as his own sons and nobles of Judah were butchered in front of him in Riblah. This was the very last thing he saw because after this, Nebuchadnezzar blinded Zedekiah's eyes. He was then placed in bronze shackles and carried off to Babylon where he remained in prison until his death. About a month later, on the tenth day of the fifth month, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the imperial guard and trusted advisor of the king, arrived in Jerusalem. This was during the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign in Babylon. He systematically destroyed the important structures of the city. He set fire to the eternal temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. All of the Chaldean troops that had accompanied the captain then tore down all the walls surrounding Jerusalem. The capital was now in ruins. The story of a city, Jerusalem. This horrific deed was preceded by many others. It seems like it was always open season on the Jewish people in Jerusalem. This last horrific attack was but a series. There was always attacks, plunder, hostage taking of the city over the years. Samaria, Egypt, Assyria, and of course Babylon. Why? Why was this city so brutally beaten up so regularly? If you look at the scripture, you see that it was a wake-up call that God was trying to give to the people. Isaiah 1, 1 to 6 says, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not know or understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? 
Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts. Open season on Jerusalem and the Jews in Palestine. But help is on the way. The very chapter that's before the one that we've been looking at, Isaiah 53, speaks of a rescue, speaks of help that's coming for these people. They were sinners, but as Dick has pointed out, compassion was the word. He may have turned aside for a second for these punishments, but in effect, his compassion was shining through. But his servant, as Isaiah calls him, the Lord Jesus Christ took the punishment for sin due his people by sacrificing himself on the cross. Isaiah 53 reads, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. God's servant, God's rescue. We're going to look at Isaiah 54, the last six verses. There's six verses. And they are meant to give us encouragement. Two important pieces of information you're going to hear. One, a magnificent city for God's servants is described. That city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And second, incredible promises are given to his people. Let's back up just a minute. Let's look at what happened after that destruction, after the city had been destroyed. Look at verses 11 and 12. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted. Indeed, true. The Jewish people became captive in Babylon for a total of 70 years. Moses predicted that this would happen because as they pushed God away more and more and chose to follow idols and sin of all sorts, God was not part of their lives. Or if it was, it was only a formal part. There was no genuine faith in him. Moses wrote, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, rebuke, and everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking me. One of the things we talk about as Christians is our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is, maybe this is a crude expression, big on relationships. He wants to be with us. He wants to help us, to lead us, to bless us. And he's very sensitive to the fact that when you turn your nose 
When you walk away from him, he feels it. Many of the leaders and key people had been taken captive to Babylon. People of the royal court, the priests, skilled workers, and anyone else that might lead a revolt against Babylon. You see, that's why you did what you did. You conquered the area, and then you took the people out, the people who could stand against you, and you resettled them someplace else so they wouldn't be a problem. The land would be docile for you. But verses 11 and 12 also speak of the Lord. He says, I will rebuild you, speaking of Jerusalem. Now, we're talking to people who are sitting in Babylon. They've lost everything. They're defeated. Some of them may have remembered seeing that city as they cast their eyes as they left, or what was left of it. But here, the Lord says he will rebuild the city. And what's really fabulous is the writer to the Hebrews gives us a picture of who's involved in this. Hebrews 11.10 says, For Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations, get this, whose architect and builder is God. Your city is rubble. But the Lord Almighty, our God, is going to rebuild it. Listen to the beauty and color of this city. The amplified translation of those two verses. O oh, you afflicted city, storm-tossed and not comforted, listen carefully. I will set your precious stones in mortar and lay your foundations with sapphires. And I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of shining barrel stones and all your barrier walls of precious stones. It is like all the jewelry, all the beautiful stones you can imagine. But get this, the very builder of that, the promise that's given to these people who are so down, is that God himself will live in that city with them. Listen to what John tells us. Revelation 21, 2-4, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. What a hope. Other prophets were telling these captives the same thing. So what happened after the 70 years were over? Did God build the temple? Is it was as beautiful as it was described? No. They built a smaller version of what was there before in Solomon's temple. It was nice, it was effective, but it wasn't what was predicted because the promise was for the future. It's a hope. The new Jerusalem is a promise for the future. But it was part of their hope, part of what God was giving them. Be glad for all God is planning for you. 
That's Ken Taylor's paraphrase of rejoicing in hope. And that's what it is. God planning for us. Look at verse 13. All your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace. The promises that he will teach the children in the new Jerusalem. Now, the increased number of children was already mentioned earlier in the chapter. There will be a lot of children, and they will get firsthand teaching from God himself. Yahweh's direct instruction of the people will ensure the future blessings he has promised. One writer had it. God's word would bring peace to them. You imagine how traumatized those kids were, carried away across the desert, put in a new land, everything different, everything changed. I want to go home. Sorry, not now, honey. But there's peace. It's coming. The promise is there. Isaiah again, Isaiah 26.3, You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Promise of the Lord's teaching. Then promise of freedom from fear and terror. These people were not just slaves. These people were put there as colonists. This was Babylon's way of populating unpopulatable land. So they weren't treated that bitterly, but still they knew who was boss. And the Babylonians ruled harshly, and later the Medo-Persians did the same. But verse 14 says, in righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. The verse in the Amplified Bible, this verse, you will be firmly established in righteousness. You will be far from even the thought of oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror, for it will not come near you. The people had lived in fear, no matter the conditions they were in, from the horror of being dragged away from their home to the time in Babylon, oppression, tyranny, fear. But the promise is, this won't stay the same. The promise for the Jewish people, for Israel, is a time of no fear. They faced enemies constantly. And we see that today. You look at the news and people want to destroy Israel. Listen to Psalm 83.4. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. You will be firmly established in righteousness. You will be far from even the thought of oppression, for you will not fear. Hear the Lord's promise. Nothing to fear. Can you imagine that? Nothing to fear. The idea is that they should have no occasion to fear the violence of others anymore. Then a promise of victory. Verse 15. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. The Lord tells Israel that he controls all the nations and those that oppress him. As a matter of fact, he allowed the attack on the northern kingdom 
by the Assyrians. He allowed the Babylonians to attack once, second time, third time to destroy Jerusalem. Listen to what the Lord tells these people. Isaiah 41, 11 to 13, all who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Incredible. And here's an interesting thought. A couple of the people that I read mentioned this. The phrase is, whoever attacks you will surrender to you. Israel was to be a witness to those around him. Remember, this was the people of God. They were to represent God to the nations and the people in the world. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. Some have interpreted that as meaning, surrender meaning turn themselves over to you, submit to you. In a sense, it's a witness. Turning our enemies into the same type of people we are who worship the living God. Maybe, could be. In Second Chronicles 15.9, uh, it says, Then King Asa assembled all Judah and Benjamin and people from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, who had settled among them, for large numbers had come over to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with them. Promise of protection from enemy attack and slander. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon for its worth, for its work, sorry. And it is I who have created the destroyer to work havoc. A weapon forged against you will prevail and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. Promise of protection. Enemy attack, but also bad-mouthing, as the expression goes. Trash-talking. Israel should not be here. Israel should be eliminated. The Lord controls both. He controls the attack. He controls the weapons. And then on the other side, he also controls the words that are said. No weapon used against them would succeed, he promises. And those who speak against his people would be refuted. Using both military and legal metaphors, God proclaims that his people will withstand all attacks because of his protection. Well, what do you mean? We're here in Babylon. This is so horrible. No, no, no. Focus on the promises. This is the good stuff to come. Rejoicing in hope. Be glad for all God is planning for you. Oh, the raging of many nations. They rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of the peoples. They roar like the roaring of great waters. Although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when he rebukes them, they flee before a gale. And slander? No one likes slander. Isaiah again speaking. He who vindicates me is near. 
Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. How wonderful. The promise is there of protection from action and from words. And the last part of 17. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. What is he talking about? God has designated his servants as those who inherit these and other blessings. Jess's mom passed away this past year. So there were things that were left to us. Many of you have been in a situation like that. They've been bequeathed to you. They become precious because they have sentimental attachment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. The servants of the Lord, in this case, Israel, who would inherit these and other blessings. This same verse, or the back part of 17, in the complete Jewish Bible reads, The servants of Adonai inherit all this. Their reward for their righteousness is from me, says Adonai. Do you believe that? Israel, do you believe that? A promise of an inheritance left to them. Now let's take a few minutes to talk about us. Those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior are in the relationship we talked about, are walking in his love. How do these promises relate to them, to us? First of all, the Lord lives with us. Ephesians 3:16 and 17 says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. You see, God promised the Jewish people that he would live in the rebuilt Jerusalem. But right now, you and I, who name the name of Christ as our Savior, have the Holy Spirit inside us. Christ lives in me and you. What a tremendous thought. As you go out into your day, Christ goes with you. Not just at your side, but the Holy Spirit within us. And Christ in you, the hope of glory. What a fabulous thought. Maybe a little harder to sin, Christian, if you realize who's in you. So the Lord lives with us. Fantastic. The Lord lives in us. For the Jewish people, When the tabernacle was around, when the temple was around, Christ, or rather I should say the Lord himself, lived in the most holy place, that part of the building. They always knew because the cloud was above it. And they could rejoice. God is there. God's home. I don't have to worry. We have the same privilege 
The Lord Jesus Christ indwells us. The Holy Spirit is within us. Also, the Lord teaches us. Remember, he's going to teach the children, the people of the city, the rebuilt city. John 14, 26 says, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, the Lord Jesus speaking, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. You look at your Bible and you say, I could never understand it. Perhaps if I spend a lot of time with Pastor Dick or some other people, they'll teach me and I'll learn. That's good. Whoops. That's good. But what we need to understand is that the Holy Spirit is within. As we sit alone with the Lord and with the Spirit in us, he'll teach us. He'll teach us. Don't cast away the help, but we do have that within us. He will remind you of everything I have said to you, Jesus tells them. The Lord lives with us. The Lord teaches us. The Lord also removes our fear and terror. These people were afraid of what they had to go through. And you know what? So are we sometimes. We're afraid. We just want, don't want to go through these days. Work is difficult. Family is a struggle. Finances are difficult. The Lord removes our fear and our terror. Romans 8.15, Paul says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you slaves again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, God. That special bond between a father and a son or daughter. Remember what we said about Israel. The promise for them was they would not have to fear anything. We don't either. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear not. We're told that all the time. Oh, yeah, but you don't know what I'm going through. Maybe not. But the power is there. It's part of the inheritance given to us. The Lord protects us from our enemies. Do you have any enemies? Uh, maybe at work. Maybe some people would rather push you aside and get ahead. Maybe your neighbor is not real happy with what you're doing at the house. But the power is there. The Lord protects us from our enemies. Paul writes to Timothy, his last letter to Timothy, before the Lord would call him home through his own execution. And he tells Timothy, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. <clears throat> he grabbed a hold of the promise. Yes, but he was going to be executed. He had spent all this time in a horrible dungeon. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And he will. Lord lives with us, teaches us, removes fear and terror, and protects us from our enemies. The Lord also won't allow words, rather actions or words, to harm us. Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Armor of God. 
so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Whether it's actions or words, people have uh, the ability to trash talk us too. And they may do some things that will harm us. But the Lord will protect us. The Lord will make sure these actions or words do not ultimately harm us. One last one. The Lord gives us an inheritance. All of the things that we just mentioned, the protection, the teaching, no fear, no terror, all of that. And more. Did you notice the key biblical truth? It's from Peter, 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He has given us everything we need for a godly life. Everything. Oh, I don't know how I can live up to being a Christian. I don't know how I can not do this and I can do that and I just too many challenges. Wait a minute. The promises are there. The inheritance is there. It belongs to you already. My challenge would be to you, claim it from your heavenly father. Claim it from your heavenly father. There may be some here who do not know the Lord. As has been said before, God is a God of judgment, but justice. But above all, God is a God of compassion. The problem is, our sin gets in the way. And the Bible says it separated us from God. Well, I don't feel that separated. It does. When the choice is yours, you choose your own way. You choose sin, disobedience. God's important, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I have, you know, things to do, things I want to do. Sin separates us from God. And what's more, sin is like a cancer that will eat away at us and bring us down to the grave. It's amazing how good sin looks as the way Satan presents it to us. Not so bad. It's okay. It's fun. The Bible said stolen waters are sweet. (laughs) That doesn't mean they're good for you. God offered his son, what we mentioned in Isaiah 53, just before this chapter of 54. That was the rescue for the people of Israel, but also for us as well. He offered his son as a sacrifice for sin. The offer's on the table for you if you don't know the Lord, but you got to take it. I remember reading of uh, times in the Civil War where if you didn't want to go into the army in the north, you could 
pay someone to go for you. And they would go off to war, get the uniform, get the gun, go off and fight. And you had the money, so you could pay for that. Someone stood in your stead. And perhaps that person might have even been killed. They died for you. God offered his son as a sacrifice for sin. We need to accept that gift to us if we don't know the Lord. We need to repent of our sins and accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. Then the world opens up. And all of these blessings become ours. We now share in the inheritance. Your name's on the will. I love these words, the beginning of Isaiah. It's the Lord speaking to the people. And perhaps he's speaking to you if you do not know him. Come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Come now, let us reason together. Do you believe that the God of the universe who has been spurned by so many is reaching out to you to be saved, to come to him? Your Heavenly Father is waiting for your reply. It's Father's Day, and I congratulate those fathers here. And as was said earlier, your Heavenly Father is very, very important. For you as a Christian, claim those things that have been promised for you. If you don't know the Lord, this one can become your Heavenly Father. He wants you to be his own. How wonderful that this offer is on the table. But again, it's up to you to take it or not. May the Lord open your heart as you think about that. Let's close our time in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you for all that Isaiah has told us, not only in this chapter, but the whole book. We thank you for the promises that were made to Israel. The wife, as Dick has reminded us, who went astray. We thank you for what uh, the promises were given. For the city itself that had been so terribly destroyed. And for the people who would live in it. One promise after the other. A hope. An inheritance. And we thank you as Christians in the 2000s that we have the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And these promises apply to us as well. One day we will live with him, but right now he lives with us. Protection, care, mercy, and inheritance. And we've only scratched the surface. All these things are ours. Lord, help us rejoice in our Heavenly Father on this Father's Day. 
those who know not Christ, may they find him today. In Jesus' name, amen.